Hello, this is Michael Stone, the host of We Earth Radio, where we have conversations that make a difference. We're committed to bringing you leading edge thinkers in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, conscious evolution, and spiritual fulfillment. In our programs, we look for positive solutions to local and global issues that leave you touched, moved, and inspired to action. Our weekly guests include local and global experts and concerned citizens working together to heal the wounds that separate, alienate, and marginalize people. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to We Earth Radio, where we have conversations that make a difference. And I am really excited about today's guest. It's good to have a poet once in a while to keep us real. And Steve Taylor's books include Clear Light, The Leap, The Calm Center. He's a senior lecturer in psychology at Leeds Beckett University and the author of several best-selling books on psychology and spirituality. He is the current chair of the Transpersonal Psychology section of the British Psychological Society. His books have been published in 20 languages, and his articles and essays have been published in over 50 academic journals, magazines, and newspapers, including Scientific American, Psychology Today, many others. And Taylor's work has drawn praise from spiritual leaders such as Eckhart Tolle, Sharon Salzberg, Susan Jeffers, and Andrew Harvey. He has appeared since 2011 annually in Watkins Mind, Body, Spirit magazine's list of the world's 100 most spiritually influential living people. And he lives in Manchester, England with his wife and three children. And it is a delight to have you, Steve. Nice to be with you, Michael. So I've been in Manchester. It's definitely a football town. And you grew up <laughs> with a dad who was a big football fan. Did you have any idea that you'd be writing poetry in those days when you were growing up? What, what was some of the catalyst that got you started? Uh, well, it's quite mysterious, really. You know, I, I sometimes say, people sometimes ask me, uh, you know, were you brought up in a religious background? I sometimes say, yes, it was uh, the religion of Manchester United. My dad was like a fundamentalist um, football fan. So no, there was no poetry in my upbringing at all, apart from at school. Obviously, we had some poetry at school. And up to the age of 14, I was a pretty normal boy. Uh, I was obsessed with soccer, football, uh, obsessed with sport in general. And I, was, I, I did well at school. I was quite clever at school, but I wasn't particularly bookish or intellectual. But at the age of 15 or 16, something changed inside me. I became extremely self-conscious and introverted. And I, for no particular reason that I was aware of, I felt the impulse to, to write poetry. In fact, I remember writing my first poem when I was 16. I remember writing it in my, the back of my school exercise book. Mm. And it felt great. I just felt so, it felt so wonderful to, to write these words down and to create something out of nothing. And um, so I don't know where it came from, really. It just seemed to be something that was inside me and that was just waiting for the right opportunity to emerge, I suppose. Even though you lived in a big city, though, you had a calling to nature. Talk about nature and how that influenced your spiritual development. As, as you say, I, I grew up in a big city. It was a very, you know, very kind of artificial environment. The only natural spaces were a few parks and, you know, the school fields. So in the evenings, I felt drawn to these natural spaces. 
this was when I was maybe 16 or 17. So I, I used to go back, go back to my school in the evening and I'd climb over the gates and walk around the school fields because it was one of the few natural spaces. And I just sort of walk around just looking at the sky, uh, looking at the clouds, you know, feeling the, the presence of the trees. And I love that because, you know, nobody else, you know, would be walking in the school fields at that time. So I was completely alone. So I love the feeling of complete solitude. And it gave me the opportunity to commune with nature. And that's, I suppose that's when I had my first um, spiritual experiences, even though I didn't call them that at that time. I, I didn't know what they were at the time. But I would feel a sense of, um, you know, euphoria, a sense of connection to the, the space around me. And everything around me would, would look beautiful, incredibly real. The clouds would seem as if they were sentient beings floating through the sky. The trees became sentient as well. They were like, like wise, ancient beings, you know, sort of emanating wisdom. Yeah, so that was my, I think, you know, the, those moments of connection to nature were my first spiritual experiences. You know, I could really relate to that self-conscious kind of introverted sense. I, I had a very similar kind of of feeling like something was wrong with me that I didn't fit in or belong somehow. At some point you went, you discovered meditation and went into this kind of aesthetic age and part of your life. Talk about that development. For a long time, I was very confused because I obviously had a, a spiritual aspect of my being, but I, I didn't understand it. And, you know, I couldn't make sense of it in terms of the environment I was brought up in. You know, I, I didn't talk about these experiences to anybody because I knew that they wouldn't understand them. My, thought, my parents thought I was strange anyway, so I wasn't going to sort of run the risk of them sending me to see a psychiatrist. So I didn't talk about these experiences. So for a, for a long time, you know, like you, I felt like I, could, I was a misfit. I was kind of destined to be miserable. I was like a, a doomed romantic hero. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but at the age of, uh, I was probably 22, I discovered a book about mysticism. It was a collection of mystical experiences. And I immediately recognized my own experiences. I thought, hey, you know, I'm not crazy after all. Or maybe I am, but all, all of these other people are crazy too. Um, so I had, a, I had a frame of reference to make sense of my experiences. So after that point, you know, I just completely immersed myself in mysticism and spirituality and mystical poetry. It was great, you know, I felt suddenly I knew who I was. Suddenly, I had this ecstatic feeling of like, you know, I was, I'd find, I finally found the land, a landscape that I could live inside, you know. I, find, I finally found a path that I could follow. Mm. So that was a wonderful time, you know, in my early 20s when I discovered this whole world of spirituality and mysticism, and I felt completely at home in it. Mm. I heard you and I had both had the same mystic that influenced us, Van Morrison. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, he, he was very important to me at that time. You know, I discovered Van Morrison. It was, it's, a very, it's a very weird thing, actually. It's quite a, a long story, but I discovered Van Morrison uh, at a time when I was at my lowest ebb. I, I was thinking about committing suicide at the age of, uh, I was just 21, I was sort of, I just sort of had enough, everything had been going wrong. And I, I felt I was at my, the, the peak of feeling like I was a romantic, um, a doomed romantic hero destined to, to die young. And there was one particular night when I, I'd sort of, 
I, I'd, be, I'd fallen in love with a girl and I was rejected. And it seemed like the final straw. And I thought, well, that's it, you know, I'm just not going to bother doing anything anymore. That's it. And a friend of mine knocked on my door at midnight uh, the same evening after I'd been rejected by this girl. And he said, um, you know, I was just passing by. I saw your light was on and I've got this tape you might be interested in. And I said, OK, um, leave it with me. And so I played it and it was it was a live concert of Van Morrison from 1987 at Glastonbury. Mm. And I listened to it and it's like, wow, what is this? It just hit me straight away. It just had this feeling of such serenity. Yeah, it was kind of pervaded with this spirituality. And it was wonderful. And after that, I, you know, I bought every Van Morrison CD or tape. It was, you know, that was part of the, it was part of the, the whole landscape that I spoke about earlier. Van Morrison introduced me to, to a large part of that spiritual landscape. Yeah. Yeah. So I feel really grateful to him. You know, I just thought of something as you were saying that that was the Glastonbury concert. You know, I, sometimes I think that music co- that's coming from a place also brings something in the music that represents that place. Like Glastonbury is a really sacred place. It's ironic that that would be the first Van Morrison thing we'd hear that album. Yeah, that's true. I think he loved playing there because it was a special place. It is a special place. I also think that music that um, music that emerges from higher states of consciousness it kind of carries the imprint of those higher states and it transmits it to the listener. So if you are a receptive listener, you know, you, 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 you know, you touch into that higher state and it it communicates it to you. I think that, I think the best music can do that. I think certainly Van's music of that time, you know, the albums he did in the 1980s, which had a very spiritual focus, they, they communicate that higher state of consciousness very easily. Was he the influence that had you get into rock and roll and become a musician? That was before Van Morrison, really. That was from the I was in, I was in bands from the age of fourteen. Oh. Uh, I was in sort of uh, new wave punk bands, uh, you know, just with school friends. Mm-hmm. And later on, it became more serious. You know, I was uh, uh, I toured around with my band and ended up doing a tour of Germany. Ended up living in Germany actually as a musician for a few years. How do you then jump from Music. Well, you were writing all along, weren't you? You were writing mostly prose, though. Talk about your evolution as a a writer. And also, I think you went back and got your master's in transpersonal psychology. Talk about that influence. I was always writing from the age of 16. I knew that I wanted to be a writer. And by the time I was 20, you know, I was spending a few hours writing every day, practically. At that time, I thought I wanted to be a novelist. I wrote poetry and short stories. But later on, it became clear that I should be writing uh, about psychology and spirituality because they were, they were my main interests. It was, it, was a, it was a gradual process, but certainly, you know, by the time I was about 30, um, I realized that, you know, that, that was my path. My path was to write books about spirituality and psychology. And, you know, I, I, love, I love music. I still love music. I play my guitar every day. I still, you know, improvise and create little pieces on the guitar or the piano. I feel like my purpose in this life is to to explore spirituality and to convey it in poetry and prose. And and but later on, um, when I decided to return to university, 
Uh, I, I found out that there was a master's degree in transpersonal psychology, not far from in Liverpool, not far from here in Manchester. And when I discovered transpersonal psychology, which is basically spiritual psychology, it's basically the study of spirituality from a psychological point of view. Then I felt, wow, this is this is for me. This is you know, this is exactly what I'm interested in. So yeah, I'm still doing that. I still do you know a little bit of academic research, studying higher states of consciousness, studying transformational experiences, and I combine that with my my other writings. You know, I'd love to hear your thoughts about the difference between prose and poetry, and the impact and the ability to impact people in in really a, a physical and more of a sensory way in poetry than prose. But I, I'm curious about your thoughts about how you've begun to lean more and more into poetry. At least I'm assuming that. Maybe that's not correct. Yeah, it is almost as if I have the two sides to my personality. In fact, somebody came up to me about a year ago. I was doing a talk about um, one of my prose books. And somebody came up to me at the end and said... Um, there's another Steve Taylor, isn't there, who writes books about spirituality? Mm-hmm. And I said, is there? And, the, and they said, yeah, he, he writes poetry. And I said, no, that's me. <laughs> and he said, really? But he'd read some, one of my poetry books. I hadn't, hadn't realized that I was the same person who wrote books about psychology, the psychology of spirituality. So it is as if there are two sides to my personality. But I think um, the poetry is, it's a, a channel of my experiences it's more experiential. I use it as a way of conveying my own spiritual experiences. I guess it's, it's more direct. I, I, find, I find that people respond more powerfully to my poetry than they do to my prose. You know, people like, people generally like my books of prose as well. But the, the poetry is more immediate. It's more, like you say, almost physical. It's experiential. It sort of really, it touches people. And, and maybe it goes back to what we were saying before about Van Morrison, that well, when I write these poetic pieces, they come from my, you know, you could say my deeper self or most authentic spiritual nature. That's where they come from. I think hopefully they, they, they carry the imprint of that and then they touch people. They give people a glimpse of their own spiritual nature through, through reading them. That's certainly how, when I really started to discover poetry myself, it was it was visceral. It was palpable. It, it, something happened in me that I could read spiritual books all day long, but mm. there was something that was conveyed. By the way, I don't know if you know it, there is a Steve Taylor who's, an, I think he's an American poet. Yeah. Oh, because I, I, I ran across him when I was researching you and I went, oh, and then I went, that's not him. <laughs> oh, that's right. I think I've heard of him like a kind of beat poet. Yeah. Yeah, he's a little dark. He's a, he's a little bit dark, some of it, but actually he's a pretty good poet. I, I read a few of his things while I was looking, looking for you and finding things. Also, like you, interested in education, and some of his poetry is around the miseducation that's being given. So I highly recommend him, actually. It was oh, kind right. of an extra added gift in finding your work. Oh. Speaking yeah, of it's, find- it's a very common name. Speaking of finding your work, you're published with Eckhart Tolle books. I'm wondering how you connected with him and and that kind of influence of his work. Or is there any? I don't know. I suspect because he's similar. Uh, 
Yeah. Um, well, it goes back about 15 years when I wrote a book called The Fall, mm-hmm. which was um, a kind of book about anthropology and archaeology, about the history of the human race and the evolution of consciousness since the beginnings of the human race. And it was coincidentally published on the same day as Eckhart Tolle's book, A New Earth. This mm-hmm. is back in October 2005. So I thought, wow, that's a coincidence. The same, exactly the same day. And then when I read A New Earth, I thought, wow, this is actually quite similar to my book. It's about the history of the ego and how the, the ego has caused a lot of the, the turmoil and suffering that has filled human history. So I thought, All right, well, I, I, sent a, I sent a copy to Eckhart's office. About six, six months later, he got in contact to say he really liked the book and he wanted to help me bring it to people's attention. So yeah, he, he, helped, me, he, he helped me promote that book. And since then, we, you know, after that, we became friendly. Uh, we meet each other from time to time. And I'm not sure if he's directly influenced me, but, you know, I, I admire his books a lot. And I found that, you know, I, I did a lot of research on transformational experiences. One of my main areas of research is the transformational power of psychological turmoil. You know, when people go through periods of intense suffering in their lives, they sometimes undergo spiritual awakening as a result of that. Mm-hmm. In my research, a lot of people have told me about how how they were helped by reading The Power of Now or A New Earth. So that, there's something about his writings, particularly those two books, which has a you know um, a lot of spiritual power. People you know are very powerfully affected by those books. Yeah, I love New Earth. Still yeah, have it on, still have it on my shelves here. <laughs> Yeah, there's something very direct, very simple, and very pure about about his writing and the way he conveys spiritual spirituality. Feels like a transmission almost. Yeah, yeah. I think it goes back to what we were saying before about the you know, the, the transmission transmissive power of music. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's that Zen saying that the uh, the finger that points at the moon is not the moon, mm-hmm. which is true, but it's also not true because sometimes the finger can actually be the moon you know if if somebody is conveying spirituality very purely through writing it can you know the words can be alive with pure spirituality mm. yeah, yeah. that's what that's what poetry is you know the best poetry is like that i like that true but not true definitely uh you know <laughs> I, I tell this story sometimes i was i was in china right after the uh, bamboo curtain came up I was with a guy who had been there, 30, American had been there through the, the whole time and spent 17 years, long story, 17 years in prison. He was, you know, we went right in after the gate lifted and we were at this temple and it has these two kind of lion gorgile things at the, sent, uh, at the front of the temple. And I said, Sydney, what are those, what are those things stand for? And he says, ah, he says, those are the guardians of the truth. I said, really, the guardians of the truth. What are the guardians of the truth? He said, confusion and paradox. (laughs) And you just reminded me that true and not true, you know, confusion and paradox. And, And that kind of leads me to thinking of where we are right now in our civilization, basically, especially with COVID in one sense, bringing us together and the other bringing up a lot of fear, and yet so many gifts and so many challenges that are happening at the same time. It feels like 
one moment we're going to blow the earth up and the next moment we're about to step into the state to the age of enlightenment. Hmm. I don't know if you have a poet, a, a, a poem for that one, but that whole, let's talk about that whole issue anyway, the paradox of where we are, you know, there's so much happening that's at a very, a lot of light coming in your book, your book, uh, new book, clear light. There's a lot of light coming in. There's also mm. a lot of dark arising at the yeah. same time. How do you, how do you hold that? It's uh, it's inevitable. I think, I think there is a process of awakening, a process of enlightenment occurring there is also a process of endarkenment occurring, you know, you could say uh, there's a process of, well, I think what is happening is that um, the old kind of patriarchal systems, the old patriarchal ego is trying to maintain itself. It's kind of feeling, um, you know, it's sensing that it's threatened because of this rising tide of enlightenment. Mm -hmm. And therefore it's trying to assert itself. It's trying to become more rigid to become more aggressive. Uh, so that's kind of inevitable. I think you know, in, in, in terms of evolution, whenever a new phase arises, the characteristics of the previous sorry, previous phase become more ossified in resistance. They try to, you know, maintain themselves, you know, because they feel threatened. So I think that's what's happening. But um, you know, the 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 um what what it means is that we are living through a time of crisis. A time of you know great potential but also great danger but but it, one, one thing I, I've um, focused on in my re research as I've said before is the the transformational power of crisis and challenge and psychological turmoil so I think in a sense the crises that we are facing particularly the ecological crises they may be acting as a, a stimulus for our awakening you know in the same way that an individual who's threatened with death sometimes wakes up, sometimes has a spiritual transformation. Maybe that's happening, you know, collectively. The fact that we may be facing catastrophe as a species, um, that may be having an awakening effect on us co collectively. Yeah, not just um, catastrophe, but annihilation. Possibly, yeah. Uh, definitely, you know, very One serious problems. You know... Um, Go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to say, I, 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 um, shall I read a poem? Yeah, I was just going to ask you that. Thanks. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Th this is um, a piece called Making the Human Race Whole. And um, I think one of the problems we're facing as a species at the moment is that we're becoming, in some ways, we're becoming more divided. There's mm -hmm. a sense that people are identifying with groups rather than as the human species as a whole. Yeah. Maybe that reflects in increasing interest in, you know, fundamentalist religions, um, in increasing adherence to a political group and so on. But, um, you know, I think we can overcome that by, uh, by connecting with each other, by, I think human beings are basically empathic creatures. We, you know, we feel when we are in the presence of other human beings, we want to connect. We feel empathy and compassion. We want to connect with each other. So this is about, you know, the power of connection and how we can become increasingly interconnected and how that can lead to increasing unity and maybe even a sense of, of collective oneness. This is making the human race whole. 
Make as many connections as you can so that this broken world can become whole again. It's your responsibility to radiate benevolence to everyone you meet, to be reckless with your friendliness, to surprise strangers with your openness on behalf of the whole human race. It's your responsibility to turn suspicion to trust, hostility to sympathy, to expose the absurdity of prejudice, to return hatred with implacable goodwill until your enemies have no choice but to love you on behalf of the whole human race. It's your responsibility to free yourself from bitterness, to harness the healing power of forgiveness, to repair connections and re-establish bonds that were broken by resentment years ago on behalf of the whole human race. It's your responsibility to open up channels of empathy through which compassion can flow until there are so many connections across so many different networks that finally, like the cells of a body, billions of human beings will fuse together, sensing their common source and their common core. Then a new identity will emerge, an overriding oneness, and the human race will be whole at last. Hmm. Beautiful, Steve. Thank you. Thanks. And isn't that at the heart of the matter, this paradigm, this Cartesian Newtonian paradigm that we're objects in a world of objects keeps us fundamentally separate and the world and nature separate from us. I think the other issue that keeps us from being able to connect, because to connect, you need to be present. Mm. can't be connected and not be presencing yourself with someone else and someone else with yourself. But what I'm more and more feeling in my own work is that the individual and collective trauma that is embodied in the individual and the collective, until we take that fragmentation of the essential self the essence, the goodness that we're born with until we can reestablish and reclaim those parts of our essence that have been frozen in trauma and fear, we're not going to be able to do that. So mm. you're thinking about how to repair the, the woundedness that keeps us from being able to connect. And, and mm. I'm particularly interested because you have several poems that I love about the body. And, you know, for me, most people are either wholly or slightly disembodied, mm. you know, like Mr. Duffy lives a short distance from his body and James <laughs> Joyce's, you know, comment it's it, it. And also distance from the physicalness of our emotions. We have emotions in our head, but we don't have them in the body. So this yeah. whole connection thing and the myth of separation, the lie of separation comes mm. down to this frozen aspect of our own original sense of self and goodness. What are your thoughts about that? Mm. Yeah, I think um, if you um, look at young children, young children don't have a sense of separation. 
-hmm. they, they're not separate to, to their own bodies. They're not separate to, the, to nature. And that's partly, partly the reason why to be a young child is such a, an exhilarating, amazing experience. And that's why the world is so brilliant and beautiful uh, to young children. But as we grow older, we, we develop this sense of separation. Um, and it's separation in a number of different directions, separation to nature, separation to other human beings, mm -hmm. separation within our own bodies. You know, there's a sense of duality between the human being which lives in his own head or her own head and the body which is carrying them like a, like a vehicle. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the root of uh, a, lot, a lot of religions carry an element of sexual repression, an element of hostility to the body. And that's where it comes from, this duality, the, the sense that you're, you know, your body is a kind of base animal that you're imprisoned in. It's got all these kind of, you know, base desires that you need to try to control and, and suppress. But that just leads to more conflict, more misery, more suffering. So at some point you have to learn to transcend the duality between you and your body. You have to learn to be at one with your body. And I think part, part of the reason is that we, we tend to live in our heads, literally our center of attention is within our own heads and we become you know divided from the body because we don't give our body attention our consciousness does not exist within our bodies our consciousness becomes sort of frozen in our heads and you know that that's it's really unhealthy but if you can develop a sense of integration with your body on the one hand you know you you, you transcend that duality that conflict you accept your body's desires you realize that it's, in fact to talk about your body or my body is a misnomer it's a you know it's a, a false term because you and your body are not separate you're part of it is your organism that is you um and that's what i i should i read that poem i've got a poem about this very subject i, I know you do that's where i was leading you <laughs> <laughs> okay i just need to find it in the contents yeah no worries it's really interesting it's oh yeah while you're looking for that it's as if our head has had a coup over our heart and our body. It's, mm. um, you know, I don't know if you know the work of Heart Math Institute, but uh, they've done some pretty amazing work around the heart and the electromagnetic field and the energy and the power of the heart, which is way beyond the power of the head. But we've had mm. this kind of mental takeover of, of, uh, our capacity to fully feel and take things in. You know, you're talking about Van Morrison. Van Morrison gets me in my body. I got to move. I want to, mm. I got to take it in. I, you know, but so many of us yeah. are, are numb. So go ahead. Yeah. Okay. This is, this is simply called your body. Your body doesn't want you to detach yourself from it, to lose yourself in abstraction and forget it's there. It doesn't want you to see it as a beast whose instincts debase you, whose functions demean you, and whose desires corrupt your purity. It doesn't want you to see it as a burden whose ailments disturb you and whose demands irritate you. It doesn't want you to see it as a cage that imprisons you and that one day you'll escape from when death disconnects your mind and body and you ascend into the ether like a bird flying free. Your body wants you to relax, to focus your attention outside yourself, 
until your thoughts slow down and space opens up inside you and your sense of self expands beyond the cramped space of your mind through your chest and arms and your waist and legs through your bones and veins and muscles and organs until every molecule of your being is alive with your energy and attention. Your body wants you to realize that it's just as sacred as your soul, that every intricate movement of your limbs, every hair, every wrinkle, every substance you secrete, every microscopic miracle that takes place inside you from moment to moment to keep you healthy and alive is just as much an expression of spirit as any profound thought or sublime state of being. Your body wants you to realize that you can't split yourself in two because everything it does is you. There is no higher or lower. There is profane. There are just different aspects of spirit, equally perfect and pure. I love that. It's beautiful. Do you know um, Walt Whitman? Yes, you know so I, I know many poems by him, but which one are you thinking of? Oh, no, I just, uh, that's one of the things I love about his work is his celebration of the body. Yes, yes, yeah, absolutely. His sense that, you know, there is no division between soul and body. The body is the soul. You yeah. know, everything the body does, everything that comes from the body is sacred and spiritual. Yeah, I studied with Gabriel Roth for 40 years, actually. Oh, yeah? So, you know, the five rhythms, moving meditation. Are you familiar with yeah. that, that work? Yeah. Everything I've looked at is to get back into the body and that that is, you know, the home of the soul. That's the, that's where the soul, yeah. you don't have a soul without a body or, well, I don't, I don't know that that's true, but if mm. you're here and you're present, your soul is definitely something that's, that has to do with being in the body. I think one of the problems is that we, in our culture, we associate consciousness with the brain. So our consciousness is up here. Mm -hmm. But actually, the whole body is conscious. You know, every part of the body, consciousness infuses every part of the body. Yeah. You know, I think what we feel is our life energy or chi energy is the consciousness of the body. And you, you can't really distinguish that from the consciousness of the head or the brain. It's the same thing. Yeah, I've always really been interested in the mystical traditions, particularly the, the animism aspect of it, that everything is alive and everything has a soul. That just makes more sense. But it also even includes all of our organs and the intelligence of the system. The fact that we get a cut and it heals itself, to me, is a sign that, we are, that life is programmed to heal. I think climate change is an aspect of that. It's, it's saying here, this is out of balance. We need to heal. Mm. And it's saying that, you know, you mentioned religion. I was just a minute ago thinking of this idea that St. Augustine had that we were, that there's original sin and that we're born bad. And that mm. led to all the objection of the body and all of these rejection of the body. And you know, this whole idea 
I mean, if you're ever with a baby, do you have any kids, Steve? I didn't. Yeah, yeah, three. I thought you had a couple kids. Yeah. When you're holding a baby, are you feeling badness? I mean, mm. really? You're feeling like you might get shot or your wallet might get stolen by this. Yeah. There's, there's no original badness. And no. so this thing of original sin was a great way to keep people in their place, collect taxes mm. and justify genocide, all the, the parts of it. But I like yeah. to think that, that everyone has original goodness and that, so. that, that it is basically trauma or experiences mm. from early on uh, or from ancestral or things that are handed down from, mm. from our family that is not complete that in order to uh, heal, we need to leave it alone and love it rather yeah. than thinking there's something broken or something mm. that's wrong with us. You know, the stage we talked about that you and I both went through, like, gee, there's something wrong with me. I don't feel like I fit in. I'm, I must be broken. Mm. And, and yet, if we could get that the nervous system, those parts that were suppressed, what what people would call soul loss or dissociation that mm. are frozen in time in the body, those aspects are a gift of our nervous system, which said, whoa, this is too much. I need to push this part down so that I can survive. Well, that's, mm. that's a healing mechanism, not something wrong. It's really the basis of healing. Yeah. So those traumas that we have that are frozen in us, those are gifts from our nervous system as a child. Yeah. But we, That's true. we try to fix something. I think you wrote, you have a poem, something about this, like there's really nothing broken. And the more we try to fix something and get mm. better, the more we're saying we're not right, we're not well. Because mm. taking mm. it back, if, we're, if presence is always where everything is in presence, then anytime we say something's broken and I need to fix it, we're reaffirming the brokenness and not allowing ourselves to naturally heal. Yeah. I think in the modern world, the, the myth of original sin occurs as the, the myth of the selfish gene, you know, the, the myth that human beings are essentially selfish. Exactly. Yeah. And it's kind of reaffirmed by a lot of scientists and even philosophers. Um, you know, I think it's led to a lot of the uh, the consumerism and competitiveness of everyday life, of modern life. It's kind of that's kind of justified in terms of the fact that human beings are selfish. You know, a lot of economists operate on the assumption that human beings are essentially selfish, and a lot of politicians certainly operate and certainly demonstrate that. But it, but it's not true. You know, it's a, it's a, it, that is a, a big um, a, a false assumption about human beings. Human beings are essentially, at the deepest level, altruistic and cooperative, mm -hmm. and yeah. Um, you know, and that comes out in crises. You know, when crises occur, people's first instinct is to be altruistic, is to help one another, to cooperate. Mm -hmm. You know, psychologists have done a lot of studies on the after effects of crises and how it binds communities together and makes people less selfish. And, you know, the fact that we can empathize with one another as well. I think a lot of the, the separation that human beings feel stems from abstraction. That's why social media doesn't work very well, because in social, social media is basically abstraction. It's communicating people, communicating with other people as abstractions, not as real human beings. So it, it facilitates separation. But when human beings are in each other's presence, they have a natural tendency to connect. 
and we you know we instinctively empathize with one another we are instinctively kind to one another even if you know there may be some aggression initially but that slowly fades away as we empathize and you know i think that that arises because of our essential oneness we are all expressions of the same spiritual essence yeah and it's only really the the ego which creates a sense of separateness social conditioning reaffirms a sense of separateness particularly you know in our modern secular societies but there's always underlying it and uh, this fundamental oneness yeah Shall I, I've got a poem about that as well. Shall I read a little yeah. short poem? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, this, this is, uh, it's called We Are Each Other. It's about really about the myth of the selfish gene and the, the myth of separateness. We are each other. We're not ghostly entities marooned inside our mental space with our personal pain and suffering that can never be shared or understood. We're not machines full of selfish genes who are always scheming to outdo each other and only ever show kindness if there's some benefit to ourselves. We are each other. Every human being's feelings flow like currents of air through the atmosphere of our communal being, brushing each other's souls, touching each other's hearts, stirring mutual compassion. We feel compassion because we're connected. We sense each other's suffering because we share each other's being. We risk our lives for others because there is only one life. We help and heal and love each other because we are each other. Mm. Yeah, I think that was my favorite poem in your book. Uh, a, a lot of ones I really love, but that one was definitely, yeah, it's beautiful. So. To connect, let's talk about this a little bit. One thing that I realize is that one of the things that keeps us from connecting is not feeling safe. The fear of somehow I will be hurt, taken advantage of, betrayed, all things from our early development. And it's embedded in the language and the institutions of this mechanistic perspective of separation. And that leads to the scarcity that we were talking about earlier. The fact that, oh, you know, I need this car. I need millions. I don't have enough millions. I need more millions. I need th this woman. I need this man. I need this, you know, to make me happy. Something other than this moment to make me happy, which is really the heart of suffering, the heart of separation is something outside of me, some other time that's going to fulfill me. It's not now, but I think I'm getting close, you know, and mm. it starts out, you know, as soon as I get out of grade school, get into high school, then it'll be, oh God, as soon as I get out of here and get into college, as soon as I get married, as soon as I get divorced, as soon as I get the job, the car, the yeah. on and on like that. So when we look at separation, it creates scarcity. But when we look at connection, it, it creates connection, it creates generosity. And like you're saying, you know, connection creates that whole feeling of, I want to give you something. Hey, mom, here's this mud pie. And it's got a, a cockroach on top of it, you know, and it's so yeah. beautiful. And it's like, ah, <laughs> but it's, it's, it's that desire to give. Um, mm. 
that's mm. that is innate yeah 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 separation you know cre cre creates a feeling of insufficiency of incompleteness so yeah. there's always a hankering to to accumulate things so that you no longer feel incomplete, but it, of course it never works because you're still incomplete. No matter how much you accumulate, you're still separate. And in fact, you become more separate. You know, the more you accumulate, mm -hmm. you kind of reaffirm your sense of separateness by accumulating more and more. And um, yeah, that leads to a kind of vicious cycle. You know, it creates more suffering, more suffering creates a, a need to accumulate more and more until eventually it kind of spirals out of control and, people spiral into depression or suicide or aggression. Yeah. Uh, that, that, that's, you know, I think that's possibly the root of warfare, you know, a sense of a desire to accumulate, a desire to accumulate land, possessions, wealth, to conquer. To, to own and conquer, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But so, you know, if, but when you, when you feel connected, then, you know, you don't have a sense of insufficiency. You don't feel a sense of incompleteness because you're not incomplete, you know, you're part of something bigger than yourself. Yeah. You, you can get that with nature. You know, one of the great things about spending time in nature, I experienced this yesterday, actually. I've been feeling recently, I've been feeling a bit sort of, um, I don't know, a bit stressed. I've been working a bit too hard, a bit stressed out. So yesterday I decided to go for a walk in the countryside. I got, I got the train into the countryside and spent two or three hours walking through the hills. Mm. And I just felt this, you know, really kind of reassuring feeling of, ah, connected again, you know, and part of the, part of the landscape again, part of something bigger than myself and feel any feeling of unease or restlessness, restlessness just faded away. So, you know, that, that feeling of connection is so wonderful. And that's, I think connection is a, the solution to every problem really. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. That's really beautiful. I want to talk a little bit about your book too, the clear light, spiritual reflections and meditations. Uh, is it released yet? It's just about to come out or it just came out. Yeah. A couple of weeks ago it came out. Okay. And um, the clear light, let's talk about light. Every spiritual tradition talks about light. When you say the clear light, what are you talking about there? It's two things, really. Um, the clear light is the essence of our being. You know, that, that's what every spiritual tradition talks about light because light is the, the quality of consciousness. It's the, the radiance of pure consciousness. So in a deep state of meditation, you touch into the inner light, but also in a, in a kind of extroverted mixed mystical experience, you see the world illuminated. Everything is illuminated around you. Everything is beautiful because it's um, infused with light. Um, so that's one thing. But also I talk about the clear light of the present because if, you, if your mind is preoccupied with the future or the past, everything is uncertain. You know, you feel uneasy because you're not really sure. You know, you, you can't be sure of the future. You can't be sure of the past. But in the present, everything is clear. You know, if you give your attention to your present moment experience, then there is, there is no doubt about the reality of things. You know, everything is pure and real and simple. And, you know, that's why partly why it's so rewarding to live in the present because, you know, everything is, is clear. That, that is the clear light of the present. Hmm. That's beautiful. You know, what's interesting is too, when we talk about the past and we carry all this baggage about the past and a lot of trauma, it's not even the past that we're carrying. It's the story that we made up about something that happened in the past. 
But if you sit with your siblings around the table and you say, remember that time that mom, that wasn't the way it happened. This is how it happened. You know, you'll get into an argument at the dinner table if you if you say that. So on the one hand, we got the remembered past, which isn't even the real past. Mm -hmm. And then we've got the imagined future. Yeah, we have no idea what it's going to be. You know, and so we spend the majority of our time in this false memory or this unpredictable future that we think we're that that we actually bring Mm. forward by putting the remembered past into the future and living into it. Yeah. Crazy, isn't it? It's crazy. It causes so many problems, you know, for us as individuals, but also, you know, for us collectively, because so many wars are based on past resentments and past events. There's a, there's a poem in the book where I say that, you know, if, if the past disappeared for a moment, the human race would be completely different. The whole world would be completely different. The human race would live in peace because all of those past resentments, all of those, you know, feelings of guilt and bitterness based on the past would disappear. Um, and again, it goes back to the clear light of the present. You know, the, in, in the clear light of present, there is no resentment, no bitterness, no anxiety from the future. There is just what is. There is just, you know, life itself as it exists in this moment. You have some offerings on your website also that I, I did want to mention. It's uh, stephenmtaylor.com. And uh, you have a couple of things from this book, The Clear Light, where you've read a poem and you have um, a meditation to go with it. Can you talk a little bit about what you're wanting to offer people there and, and what's available on your site um, and your podcasts? Well, the, the pieces are quite meditative in themselves. Some of them, you know, if you read them slowly, they act as a meditation. Mm-hmm. So I, I just wanted to expand on that by uh, developing a meditation based on the pieces. For, for example, there's a couple of pieces based on acceptance. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're called The Alchemy of Acceptance, part one and two. Uh, so, yeah, I wanted to explore that further by sort of creating an exercise based on the poems that people could use to accept aspects of their lives where, which create conflict because they resist them. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of, um, you know, I want people to experience the alchemy of acceptance. I want them to feel how releasing resistance towards a certain aspect of their life can, you know, can bring a feeling of, of liberation. So, yeah, the, the meditations are kind of experiential glimpses mm-hmm. of the poems themselves. Yeah. There's a thing called, um, part of my background is uh, in, in Gestalt and, um, particularly in the area of uh, change in organizations, but there's a a theory, a paradoxical theory of change that says that you don't change by being something you're not. You only change by being what you are precisely. And then the conditions for real change come out of that. And I think Mm. that's, that's really a powerful, um, example of what you're saying with this acceptance by allowing myself to have the feelings, the emotions, the thoughts that I have and to, and, and, and to have the self-criticism and the guilt and the shame and to actually befriend it and to mm. embrace it and allow it to be there. Then it integrates 
and it doesn't become something separate from us, but it becomes, oh, and that, as you say, you know, in meditation, yes, yeah. and this. And it brings it, 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 so that acceptance is one way that we bring ourselves into more presence. But another way and another poem, and maybe you'd offer this as kind of a, a way to close, is you can't be what I've found for myself, and I think it's universally true, you can't be grateful and not be present. True mm -hmm. gratitude can only happen in the presence. So the more grateful we are for mm. whatever, even the, the things that we wish we didn't have, the yeah. more we bring ourselves, we presence ourselves. And I'd yeah. love for you to share that. You, you have at least one poem that I remember uh, about that very thing. And maybe as a way of um, bringing our, our conversation to a close, mm. you, can, you can read that. That's true, isn't it? Yeah, you, you can't be grateful for the future because it's unreal. It doesn't exist. You can't be grateful for the past because that's gone. It doesn't exist. So you can only be grateful for what's in the present. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So, yeah, maybe you mean a poem called The Gift. Yes, that's, that's the one. Yes. Yeah. OK, so th this is one of the poems which is really a kind of meditation. So if I read it slowly, maybe listeners can um, you know meditate along and just. Yeah, don't close your eyes if you're driving, though. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> Right, so this is uh, The Gift. As you breathe, inhale deeply in gratitude for the gift of air. As you eat, swallow slowly in gratitude for the gift of food. As you see, look attentively in gratitude for the wonder of the world. As you love, be passionate in gratitude for the beauty of flesh and form. As you live, be authentic and fearless in gratitude for the gift of life. Mm. Mm. So beautiful. Well, I am really grateful for you taking the time all the way from Manchester to come visit us today and share. Uh, again, the book is The Clear Light, Spiritual Reflections and Edi uh, Meditations. It's got an introduction by Eckhart Tolle and an endorsement by him. And then if you want to hear more of Steve Taylor's work, go to stephenmtaylor.com. Any last uh, word that you want to say or give to our listeners for today, Steve? Um, Maybe a practice. A practice? Yeah. Um, Whatever. Okay. Well, one, um, one of the pieces in the book is called The Process. And I find that, you know... Um, one of the greatest struggles that people have when they follow, follow a spiritual path is with their thoughts, with their thinking mind. They have this kind of incessant chatter in their minds that they can't, can't quieten down. And as we were saying before, a lot of people feel as though they need to kind of stop to repress this thinking mm -hmm. because it's disturbing, it disrupts their state of being, it creates negative thoughts, negative feelings. 
But actually, if you try to repress it, if you try to stop it, it only seems to get stronger. In the long run, it seems to sort of gain more momentum through, through the act of suppressing it. So what you should really do is accept the thoughts in your mind as a process. In the same way that your body has a lot of different processes, you know, the heart, the beating of the heart, the circulation of the blood, the digestion of food, the breathing process. Thinking is just another process. It's just your brain's way of working through your experience. It's your brain's process, processing of associations and information. So in the same way that you don't identify with your blood circulating or your digestion, you don't need to identify with your thoughts. You can just allow your thoughts to play out, to flow by, and just you can watch them. You can sort of laugh at them, but you don't have to identify with them. You can just allow them to flow by and not be carried away by them and just observe them in the same way that you observe any other process in your body. It's beautiful. Really good. Steve Taylor, so good to have you. I'll let people get your book and read The Gift and many more wonderful poems. It's just a, a delight to have you on We Earth Radio and I hope we can do it again sometime. Lovely conversation. Yeah, I'd love that. Yeah, I've really enjoyed speaking to you, Michael. So yeah, it's, it's been great. Thank Likewise. you. You take care. You too. We Earth Radio is an independently produced program supported by listeners like you. We are committed to bringing you leading-edge thinkers in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, conscious evolution, and spiritual fulfillment. If you would like to receive our complimentary newsletter, The Well of Light, make a contribution, or listen to any of our past shows, go to our website, welloflight.com. Thank you so much for your commitment to a world that works for all life.